Hey there, it's Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Mayor Mitch Landrieu of New Orleans, fresh from removing the last of four Confederate monuments, talks about race, reconciliation, and rebuilding, not just for his city, but for the country. And he does it with a passion you won't soon forget. I know you're probably sitting down, but you really need to sit down for this one. Listen to what he has to say right now. Mayor Mitch Landrieu, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. You, you know, you've been a little busy of late. <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've been rebuilding one of the great cities of the world, and it's been, a, it's been quite a ride. The last couple of weeks have been a little bit more intense than normal because of, you know, this fairly difficult issue we've been dealing with about trying to make sure that the people of New Orleans know that they have a right to curate their own public spaces. And, it, of course, it includes a discussion of Confederate war monuments. And, uh, you know, the people, through a very open and robust process a couple years ago, uh, decided to take them down. And since that happened, there has been a huge uh, mounted national resistance to that uh, with a number of different lawsuits. But there were three open community hearings and city council hearings, and there were 13 judges that reviewed this thing on the state, local, and federal level. Uh, And we got about you know, following the law last week, and we took them down in a very thoughtful, respectful way. But it was very contentious as the, as the national public got to see that the Civil War might be over, but there are lots of old wounds that still linger. As we try to form, you know, what we always talk about is that more perfect union. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of work to do, but I think it was a right step in the right direction for a city that uh, has a really deep and rich past. But we want to remember all of our history, not just some of our history, and we want to prepare ourselves for you know, the future. And that's what we did. I mean, you say you did this in in a thoughtful way, but you also had to do a lot of it in secret. Um, sometimes, you know, not even announcing when the the monuments would come down, certainly not publicizing who or what company was involved in bringing those down. And that was because of some of these folks who don't want to let go of the past being very angry to the point of making threats. Well, I divided it into two sections. First of all, I started thinking about this well before the event, you know, that captured our imagination from South Carolina, where our nine fellow citizens were killed while they were praying uh, in Charleston. We began thinking about the city's 300th anniversary, which is next year, and making sure that, you know, as we rebuild the city after Katrina, remember, we lost 1,800 people. We lost, you know, we got 500,000 homes hurt. So we, we've had to rebuild all of our schools rebuild our levy system, rebuild our health clinics, rebuild everything down here. And in the context of that, we began thinking about the public spaces in New Orleans, and we became painfully aware that in the most prominent spaces, we had basically statutes that revered Confederate generals. And New Orleans never really was a Confederate town that really doesn't reflect our whole history. These statutes were actually put up 166 years after you know, the founding of the city. So we had an open, robust process that actually was the result of racial reconciliation communications that we had across the city. And we had numerous public hearings, as I said, numerous, you know, court challenges. All of that was done out in the open and robust, but it was very painful. It was very hard because we don't really know how to talk ourselves from where we are to where we need to be. But once the courts cleared the way, which was just a couple of weeks ago, and we started trying to take these monuments down, it is absolutely true that because of really imminent security threats and because of convenience, because all of these are located in heavy traffic areas, 
you know, there the, the was strong recommendation of the security personnel was to be able to take these things down in the middle of the night. There were death threats. Uh, there was blacklisting of companies that responded to our proposals to take the monuments down. Crane companies got blackballed from lending us any equipment. And so we had to take, number one, the right precautions and to make sure that if we took them down, we took them down safely. Now, the last one was taken down at 12 o'clock during the middle of the day, and that was also done for safety reasons. But it was a it was a much more complicated process. But every decision we made was driven by safety and security because of imminent threats uh, to either people in the city or the contractors that were working on the contracts, which mm-hmm. goes to speak to the issue of how raw this really is. But at the end of the day, whether you were for the monuments, taking them down or putting them up, we shouldn't have to have, go through that kind of difficulty to stop what, what, at that point in time, was a legitimate government action. Mm-hmm. You know, you you gave an extraordinary speech on Friday after that last monument monument was removed. And, and in the speech, which is really terrific, if people have not read it, they need to go Google Mitch Landrew New Orleans Monuments speech uh, so that they can get it. But after recounting your city's history as America's largest slave market, a site of hundreds of lynchings, and where freedom riders were brutalized, you said... When people say to me that the monuments in question are history, it immediately begs the questions why there are no slave ship monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks, nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives, all of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to this historical malfeasance, a lie by omission. Why did you feel it was important to not only say those words, but to say them so forcefully? Well, you know, I think it's hard for people to see the truth. And I think that one of the things I said in the speech is I want to gently peel people's hands off of a false narrative of history. Because mm-hmm. once, you know, to, to the, they say to the victor goes the spoils, which means that you get the right to history that you want. Well, here, that went to the people who were defeated. And so I thought it was really important to to be able to defend the decision we made and to put it in historical context, not just as an affront to the, those that were in opposition, but to hopefully that they would learn, too, and say, wow, I really never thought about that. You mean you don't, you don't want to move these monuments because you don't want to change history when it's the people that actually put the monuments up that changed the history. This city, as you know, is going to celebrate its 300th anniversary uh, in, in 2018, which meant that Bienville got here in 1718. And then a thousand years before that, we had lots of different kind of people down here. And everything in New Orleans that's special, everything is a result of diversity and the communion of different cultures and music and food that actually have found themselves across the ages. For example, jazz music, is, which is a gift that the people of New Orleans gave to the world, it was actually created here, is, is, is an accumulation of a number of different musical influence from a number of different continents that has been developed over time. But we don't, you know, when you think about, well, why, why don't those public spaces celebrate jazz? Why don't they celebrate all of the people that have been here the entire time and what is affirming about the city? And so, essentially, when you get down to it, besides the historic nature of this, this is really a simple, a, a simple assertion that the people of New Orleans have a right to put on their property what they want. That's essentially which is mm-hmm. what this is about, wrapped around all the historical grievances. And so as we are rebuilding the city, and we're not building the city back the way it was, 
before Katrina because we recognize that we have a lot of problems. We're building the city back the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. And if I also said in the speech, if we could just take a moment here and think about our whole history, if these spaces were open right now, would the monuments be something that reflected who we are as people? Nobody would say yes to that. So if we had an opportunity now to course correct history, to actually make straight what was made crooked back in 19, 1890, by the way, by another mayor and another city council who happened to be uh, soldiers of the Confederacy, why wouldn't we want to take that opportunity to correct history, not to rewrite it, but to actually tell it the correct way? And I thought it was very, very important, and I tried to do it in a, in a, in a, in a humble way in the speech, to speak truth to power, but to speak it in, in a forceful but, but positive way that I have to open your eyes up to the reality and to the facts and hope that if you see it as a human being, you could acknowledge that it was wrong and then move into a space of reconciliation. And I think that actually that's going to happen. I think it's going to take us some time. But I think now that those monuments are down, you know, my sense is the people of New Orleans have always been ready to move on. Most of the people that have been opposed to this have been people outside of the city that don't live here, don't own the property and want to tell people in the city of New Orleans what to do with their history. And I just think that they shouldn't be able to do that. So, Mayor, one of the reasons why I admire you so much, uh, among many reasons, is that you take on really tough issues and you take them on in a way where people, as you said, like they're forced to open their eyes. And you're not the first person to confront this issue of Confederate monuments on, pu- on public lands. But to my mind, you're the only one out there uh, of any prominence on the issue, speaking so publicly, why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I, I, you know, people have have tried to either give me too much credit or too much criticism for doing this. There have been so many people that have gone before me. I mean, the last four mayors have talked about this issue in the city, um, but it, it's just I, I was pretty clear when I got elected about what my job was when I, when I got here. Remember, we had suffered through Katrina, through Rita, through Ike, through Gustav, through the recession, through the BP oil spill, through a tornado. I mean, our city was really on its back. And my job, I was really clear about what it was. My unconditional love for the city, you know, gave me the freedom to tell the people, I've got to stop the city from falling off into a cliff, into the Gulf. We were, we were almost bankrupt. Nothing was working in the city. And so my job was to do all of the hard things. I mean, deep deep, fundamental, foundational change in all of the institutions of the city, from health care to education, you know, to firefighter pension funds. I mean, we took them all on on purpose so that the next mayor and the next city council had a really good opportunity to, to move the city forward much, much faster than you would be able to do if you hadn't done those fundamental things. And so that's why when you go back and look at the work that we've done, we have taken on the big, big fights that nobody would ever take on because we had to. Because if we didn't, the city was going to die. We couldn't maintain the status quo. Now, the trick was, and this is very hard for every community, how do you hang on to your history, your authentic history, your real history, and then how do you prepare yourselves for a 21st century economy? And how, in a, in a city that's so full of historicity in New Orleans, do you not lose your soul in the process? That was a challenge. And when we finished, you know, balancing our budget seven times, you know, reducing the unemployment rate, fixing our schools, the thing that was really staring us in the face was racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Because that, I mean, that essentially is the thing that either helps you move forward or not. And, you know, in the world that we were in, and remember, we, we did this before South Carolina, but when South Carolina happened, 
I, I said to my in that speech, you would have think you would have thought that that this would have been easy even after that, and the fact that it wasn't goes to the heart that the people in America really have to think about, especially in the era that we're in right now, where we have to talk to each other, and we have to understand each other, and we have to say if things in the past were wrong, they were wrong. We want to fix them. Let's reconcile. And when we do that, there's nothing that we won't be able to do going forward. And so these monuments were symbols. They were put up for a very specific reason. These four particular monuments were put up by the same groups of people, and they were designed not to honor the men not to honor Robert E. Lee, P.G.T. Beauregard, Jefferson Davis. They were put up to send a message that, that who was still in control, notwithstanding the fact that the Confederacy lost the war. Now, that's intimidating. And the consequence of that was that people who didn't feel comfortable here left. So how can you have a great city if all of your intellectual capital, all of your raw material, all of your raw talent, like Wynton Marcellus and Louis Armstrong, and other various and assorted businessmen, artists leave with the Great Migration and taking all your, your, your valuable stuff and not having anything back. What's left for the people who were there? And so that's why it was important to really kind of open up people's eyes in a searing, you know, precise way so that maybe they can say, oh, gosh, you know, I never thought about that. Um, I know this is hard, but yes, we're going to do it anyway because we want to get better. We always want to keep getting better. And that was really what I was attempting to achieve mm-hmm. in the speech. You know, um, back in, I can't believe it was uh, two years ago next month was the last time um, we actually saw each other and talked to each other. And that was at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, and it was in a, on a panel that you did with ta Coates, and it was moderate, moderated by the editor of The, of the Atlantic. Um, and you said on that panel, talk about speaking in a searing way and opening people's eyes. On that panel, you called poor young black males in your in your city, in New Orleans, quote, an endangered species. And it, there was a whole lot of other things that you said um, in that hour-long panel that were were truth-telling and tough to hear, but things that people needed to hear. And it brought to mind the fact that you talk about the issue of violence and the impact on African Americans with a passion I have I haven't seen in a Southern white politician ever. Uh, well, I'm not sure you've seen it in any politician in the country. Not just not just in the South. I don't know anybody in the North that's talking about it either. So you, why you can not? Feel my southern pro- you can feel my Southern pride <laughs> coming <laughs> coming out because I'm proud to be from the South. I think the South is terrific, and the South has a lot of spectacular things in it. But I think we have a very hard time confronting painful issues and it's easy for us just to blame somebody else or to ask you know a politician for an easy solution you go fix crime in chicago fix go fix crime in boston go fix crime so you really kind of go see these kids and talk to them and 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 find out that their lives have been forsaken and it, you know it does it just doesn't it just doesn't beg for an easy answer. But the problem is everybody wants an easy answer that's not painful. Well, all of the right answers are not easy, and all of them hurt. That's essentially what I've learned as the mayor. And, you know, the country has gotten away from being able to look at hard truths. And we all retreat to this kind of rhetoric where we vilify each other, and nobody wants to get essentially into the hard work of governing. And that's what it's about. And, and you know, one of the things that happened when I got here I had terrible choices on my desk to choose between bad and really bad. 
like either shut down the government or, or go bankrupt. I mean, that's a bad decision for a person to have to make. And as you think about these kids on the street, and you say, well, how come they have personal responsibility? Why can't they act better? Well, Tana Hasi said this, and, and he's right. The environment that some of our children grow up in are stultifying. I mean, they're, 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 they're killing in a, in a very real way. So, like, one of the biggest criticisms that I got for the monuments from people who, by the way, never ever thought about young African-American kids in the, in the city said, Mayor, you ought to be concentrating on murder, not monuments. And I asked them if they ever thought about the possibility that the monuments were murder. Hmm. That they represent an institutional indifference that has existed for a long time that actually strangles people's lives. So if you think about it in a Jesuitical way, and you think about those monuments sending a message that only certain people are welcome here and certain not, that only certain people are entitled to certain things and other people are not, that some people have access to some things and other people are not, and, and that the consequence of that over many, many, many years is to deny people the, the existence and the quality of life, that kind of sounds like murder to me. You know, so if you really want to think about it and you really want to have the discussion, let's try to have it in a forthright way. And I will say this. I never really fully understood until recently what the old adage was that where there is no justice, there's no peace. I really kind of heard that as I was growing up about, well, if you don't give me what's entitled to mine, I'm going to take it from you and we're going to have a fight. That's kind of the way I heard that. Well, what it really means to me now is that when people are not given what is justly theirs, when they don't have access to the things that are rightly theirs, like land, water, food, and property, then you can't possibly have peace because there's nothing but alienation. And there can't be peace. It's always anxiety. It's always frustration. It's not necessarily a physical violence, but it's the violence of alienation. And I think that we just don't think about that. And I think when people, you can see this with the last election, no matter who you were for, and this notion now that white poor people were left behind, that's always been true. And it's always been true about poor African Americans, too. What's been sad is that they haven't found each other yet and don't understand that their futures are united as one. That, that's, that's the next step that has to take place. And what's happening is demagogues over the ages have been able to make white people think that black people are trying to take their stuff. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to benefiting from the presence of uh, and the communion of them. So, for example, in the speech I talk about asking people to consider this from the perspective of a mother or a father, African-American who are trying to explain to their fifth grader why Robert E. Lee is sitting on top of the city and who he is and what he fought for, a man who tried to deny her humanity. And I ask them to think about whether or not if that girl's potential is limited and her opportunities are limited, whether the rest of the cities is too. Because if she were able to grow up ostensibly and, and live all of her dreams, she may very well be the person who was going to be the greatest mayor that the city ever saw, or the person that, 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 that cracked the code on cancer, or the person, and because all of these kids down here, if given the right nurture and the right environment, have proved that they can perform at a higher level. So how many people have we thrown away by an attitude of exclusion? And that's, that's when I started thinking about what that meant, and I just felt like I needed to speak to it. And, you know, I've gotten myself in a place in life where I'm free to say what I want to say, um, and that's what I did. You know, I, okay, the, the, you put a lot out there that we don't have a whole lot of time to get through, but I'm going to try. So um, in talking about about poor whites, but also poor poor African Americans and how they haven't found each other. I'm wondering, given that you are in, I think it's the final year of your final term, two terms as mayor of New Orleans, correct? 
Yeah. So what lessons from your tenure as mayor have you learned that would be of benefit, one, to the National Democratic Party and two, to the nation as a whole as it tries to confront uh, still the issue of race? Well, let me say this. I don't, I don't have any advice for the National Democratic Party or the National Republican Party. I do have advice for the country, which is that everybody is the same. And everybody ought to be given the same opportunities. And when they're able to find each other and see each other, you know, based on what's in their heart, what's in their soul, as opposed to what color of the skin, are we going to be much better off? And that we need to stop separating each other around that in a very, very real way. I, I, I can just attest to the truth that I saw after Katrina when we were pulling people out of the water, was that when you're wet and you need to be saved, you don't worry about what boat you're getting in. Get in the damn boat. You just get in the damn boat. And and I saw I saw in that moment of catastrophe when the entire civil government disappeared that black people and white people didn't see color in that moment when they had a common enemy and a common threat or a common opportunity. And there's a real there's real hope there. So, you know, when you go into some of the more difficult areas, quote-unquote, the Rust Belt, um, or you get into South Louisiana and you're seeing people, uh, some white, some African-American, they're, they're struggling with the same stuff. And unfortunately, what we've done in this country is we've, we've put them in, in a pit together and convinced them that if one of them has something, the other one can't have it, as opposed to having them stand side by side, saying that, you know, we have to stop fighting over a little bit of meat on an otherwise empty bone and try to figure out a way to all, for all of us to grow, this, grow through this thing together. And, the, and race is just a really hard thing for us to get through. It's painful, but here in the city, I say it all the time, look, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you can't go around it, you actually have to walk through it. And walking through it is hard, and it's painful, and it's uncomfortable, but when you come out the other side, we're all going to be better off for it. You know, I can imagine that people listening to you right now, um, particularly Democrats, will be thinking, this guy... Holy smokes! This guy is someone who should, um, once he leaves, once he leaves City Hall in New Orleans, really should get on the national stage and become a national leader. What would you say to them? Well, you know, when you start thinking in those terms, it makes you afraid to say what you think. And I don't think I, that's a doing, problem for you, Mayor. I've been doing this. I've been no. It's 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 hard for every elected official. Everybody. You know, somebody said to me the other day, you're fearless. And I said, that's just a lie. I'm not fearless. I'm, I'm afraid all the time. <laughs> it, because it's a, good thing to, it, it's a good thing to be afraid because it makes you more rational and more thoughtful. It's, it's kind of working through that fear that, that helps you get to another place. For example, I listen to John Kasich. I like that guy a lot. I, I, I listen to him talk, and, and you can see an elected official who's free. He, he's saying what it is that he needs to say, and he's doing it in a forthright way. Um, but we don't, I don't fit into anybody else's box. It's just a weird kind of thing. And, you know, I've watched the National Democratic Party get more narrow and move more left. And I've watched the Republican Party get more narrow and get more right. And the reasonable, thoughtful people in the middle get shut out and killed. And that's a bad place for the country to be. You know, and, and it may very well be that the answer is not going to be found on the national level. Or if they were looking for a national leader to take us there, where it's going to be found is in the streets of America and in cities and in communities and in rural areas where people have the freedom to talk and, and, and to be honest with each other. 
that that's where it's going to happen. And I, I don't, I'm not looking for any salvation from Washington D.C. I don't think they're coming. I think Washington's stuck. I think they're trying hard, but they can't get anything done. They can't even get in the same room and talk. They well, can't get an infrastructure plan done. They can't right. get a health care plan done. What I'm saying to you is, even be that as it may, they have important work to do, and I and I hope that my my fellow you know, elected officials get to work. What I'm saying is that America will be solved on the streets of America, in the prairies, in uh, in the backwaters and in the roads, where people just need to get to know each other better, and they need to see each other. They need to see each other, not just look at each other. They actually need to see each other, because every day we drive by things and walk by things and act like they're not there, because we never took the time to see them or to understand them. I mean, something as simple as when I took the, when we took down the the uh, PGT Beauregard monument, somebody from that neighborhood actually called me and said, "Gosh, I didn't realize how pretty the museum was right behind it because you couldn't see it, hmm. but they walked by it every day." And hmm. of course, that's a uh, that's a nice example for, and we do this with young African American kids every day. We walk by them and we don't see them, but they gold on the streets. I mean, we need to start thinking about each other as valuable human beings, and once we get there. Most of the rest of it's going to take care of itself. Mayor Mitch Landrew of the great city of New Orleans, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Great. Jonathan, thanks so much. God bless. Take next, care. Next time I'll come down. All right, come on. <laughs> I would love to see you. All right. See you later. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The Washington Washington Post. Post. 